This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and fishing accessories. Tech, precision, ingenuity, legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Welcome to The February Room. Today, our guest is Brooks Montgomery, owner of Heart Montgomery Outdoor Sales. Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Lauren. I, uh... During this pandemic, bandwidth is a precious commodity, so I'm honored that you're wasting it on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pleasure is all mine. So um, before we go into who you are, I know you've um, had some pretty incredible travels um, around the world fishing, um, and one of those special places was in New Zealand. And I know you must have some pretty memorable fishing stories from that adventure. Um, care to share? Well, sure. I, uh, I, I was very fortunate uh, back in the 80s and 90s, I worked in the U.S. Antarctic program. And so thanks to your taxpayer dollars, I was able to go to New Zealand basically twice a year for nine years. 
and uh, and then our R and R after we'd get off the ice, we'd go fish in New Zealand. So um, it's still my favorite place to fish in the world. Memorable stories. Oh, you know, it's, I'm haunted by the ones that got away more than the ones that I caught. But I guess one that uh, haunts me a little bit and still cracks me up to this day is when I would get off the ice and I would go to a place called Lake Brunner. It was a quick way to escape Christchurch, uh, get out of the big city and start fishing. And I would walk around Lake Brunner uh, just looking for cruisers along the lake edge. And these browns would cruise along eating cicadas and sculpin minnows and I would fish with a very sparse muddler minnow and you could cast it uh, and it would imitate a cicada on top or you could give it a little pop and strip and it would imitate a cockabully minnow. And anyhow, these, these fish would cruise along sometimes just a few feet from the bank of the lake and sometimes I would literally lay on my belly with my chin in the sand and flip the muddler out there to a cruising fish and then strip it in. And uh, one time I stripped, this big brown came along and I kept stripping and stripping and stripped the muddler right up onto the sand and the brown trout chased it and half beached himself. And we came eye to eye and I swear to God that fish looked right at me and he slowly just rolled over and went back in the water and took off. So uh, <laughs> so that, that's one of my favorite memories. It's not, not necessarily catching all the big ones, but episodes like that still crack me up. I know you said that New Zealand is your favorite place to fish. Why is that? Well, New Zealand, just for all outdoor pursuits, it's an incredibly beautiful place. It's set up really well for bumming around, uh, huts to stay in, even old deer hunter huts that have been abandoned. Lots of trails, lots of lakes. There's about 227 named bodies of water just on the South Island of fish. It's real gin clear water, real tough trout, and it's almost like hunting. You, you'll walk a lot of miles just to find one fish sometimes, but you know, but they're, you know, they're all Walters. <laughs> they're all quite big fish, so you know it's not uncommon to catch six pound, eight pound, ten pound trout in New Zealand. Well, and you also live in a pretty spectacular place yourself. You're in Salmon, Idaho. Great, beautiful place. Can you just give us a little bit of background of who you are? Well, sure. I uh, I moved to Salmon in 1979, uh, so I'm still not a local. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got buddies that still remember the day I hit town, so they'll have to kick the bucket before I'm a local and they forget where I came from. But I, I grew up uh, in California as a little kid, and then... Uh, Kind of like a lot of fishermen, I had grandparents that fished, and my grandpa lived in Golden, Colorado, so I would visit him in the summers, and I still have my first fly rod that he gave me, and it, I would call it more of a pole than a rod. It's a Shakespeare wonder rod that was a spin cast rod with a Fluger medalist reel, and I still have it, and it's still in remarkably good shape, and I think he gave it to me when I was about eight years old. Uh, anyhow, I, I, I realized I always liked the mountains, and I was a ski bum and a ski mountaineering bum. I, I left uh, California when I was about 18, moved to Utah, then from Utah to Wyoming to, to Jackson Hole, and then Jackson Hole to Salmon. Uh, and Salmon, in 79, I was kind of looking for the last town to fall. I was kind of haunted by the condos that were overtaking the ski towns. And, and I'm proud to say Salmon, Idaho, the population sign reads the same today as it did in 1979. So I guess mission accomplished there. <laughs> but I, I moved to Salmon, 
more for the river running, fishing, uh, than the skiing, although I, I've done, done a lot of skiing around here on the peaks around here, did, did a lot of ski mountaineering in Idaho. And uh, I don't know, I guess I've had uh, a lifetime of working in the sporting goods industry in one form or another, either working at ski resorts. Uh, I actually had a fabulously unsuccessful store in Salmon from <laughs> 79 to 85, went really broke. Worked in the mountaineering business for a while and then ended up in Antarctica. Um, and then the Antarctic thing allowed me to travel and then come back in the summers to salmon. So it was really a saving grace for me to... The winter months, I'd go to Antarctica in September. Uh, they'd dump me off in New Zealand in March and I'd fish for a couple months. And then I'd come back to Idaho and guide river trips, uh, middle fork of the salmon, main salmon, and then uh, did a stint over on the big hole guiding for Craig Fallon at Big Hole River Outfitters. And uh, I don't know, I just, I consider Salmon the center of the known universe. I probably shouldn't be talking about it right now. <laughs> so now, but now you are in the uh, sales. Yeah, I got into uh, sales uh, in the mountaineering business in the 80s. I was a, a mountaineering rep and then I was a sales manager for Mountain Smith, which back in the 80s was more of an, uh, I'd say a mountaineering climbing pack company. They made expedition ski sleds and climbing packs and, and heavy duty backpacks back in those days. And then I ended up on the ice running the safety program and mountaineering program for the Antarctic program. And then guided fishing in the summers. And then I, I you know, as I, as I did more and more mountaineering and as I got older and older, I realized I wanted to do more and more fishing and, and less, uh, dangerous stuff, I guess. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, I, you know, I've just really been smitten with the fishing. I was, uh, my first big break repping was with Hardy and they did a little adventure of Hardy USA. And I ended up repping the entire Western United States for Hardy out of England uh, back in uh, the late nineties. And I covered everything west of Denver, including Alaska, which was just insane because it was like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. I'd get done with the territory and have to start all over again by the time I got done. Uh, and then uh, started my own rep agency, was a rep for a lot of great companies. Uh, and then uh, I was at a trade show oh, probably in, oh, let me think about this. It probably would have been the late 90s. And I, and I ran into the, a guy who was repping Winston, Chris Hart, and we were kind of competitors, but kind of comrades uh, at the same time. And anyhow, over the years, we became good buddies. We'd slug it out by day in, in sales and then have fun playing guitars and goofing around together at night. Anyhow, we merged uh, our rep companies and became Hart Montgomery Outdoor Sales. Um, I think that was in, 19, in 2010. Um, and then Chris wanted, believe it or not, to pursue professional bass fishing after a few years. And, and so I bought him out in 2014 and he took off to go tournament bass fishing. Ironically, Chris is back repping again, but I kept the name Hart Montgomery, Chris Hart, Brooks Montgomery, just for times like this pandemic. When everything goes bad, I want his name in front of mine with my agency. So <laughs> something's really bad, I say, call Hart. <laughs> Um, I'm also just really curious, you know, you said you went to Antarctica mountaineering. I mean, I can only imagine you must have had some pretty nail-biting experiences. Yeah, I had a, actually a fantastic job. So I was in charge of the, 
what they called happy camper school. It was a survival school. And then we, there were five of us uh, that ran basically the U.S. Antarctic mountaineering program. And so we would get sent out on various expeditions and we, we functioned as search and rescue also. Um, but McMurdo, where we were based out of, um, is actually a kind of a big, ugly little town. It kind of, it reminds you of a little mining town. It's peak population. It can have up to 1,200 people there, believe it or not. Um, and then, it, you know, for winter it clamps down. But I, I was flown around in military aircraft, got to do a lot of really cool climbs and expeditions and trips. Um, Wildlife-wise, all the wildlife is along the ice edge, so there's nothing in the interior with the occasional snowy petrel that'll fly by, but on the ice edge you have orcas and leopard seals and Weddell seals and Adeli and emperor penguins. And and so, uh, I mean, all fishermen will appreciate this story. I, I've been where you could, on the ice edge, where you can take your ice axe and slap it on the ice edge an orca would come up and spy hop right in front of you to check you out. And that, that's, uh, that's quite the experience. Never threw oh a fly gosh. to one, though. <laughs> that terrifies me, like killer whales. I think every time I watch Animal Planet, there's a killer whale, the seal right around there. And like, is it going to make it? And then you just see it being tossed in the air. You're like, nope. Yeah. The tears are coming. Yeah. I, one of the, the more amazing things I saw was at, over at Scott Base, which was the New Zealand base, as the ice was starting to break up for the austral summer, which is, you know, our Christmas time up here, um, there were these Waddell seals and on these plates of ice out there. And, and the, the funniest description I've heard of Waddell seals, as you glance out, you got to remember in Antarctica, the only colors are blue and white and brown. There's no green. And uh, somebody described Waddell seals laying on the ice as rat turds on a china plate. And... Uh, Anyhow, we're watching these orcas spy hop trying to find these Waddell seals to eat. And the Waddell seals are huge. They're as big as your sofa. And uh, anyhow, this one, we were all sitting there, a whole group of us, about at least a dozen of us with our cameras on tripods. And these Waddell seals were spy hopping and they finally caught one Waddell seal and grabbed it. it. It jumped up on the ice out of the water. The orca came up behind it, grabbed it. It spit out of its mouth like a watermelon seed right back up on the ice. The orca jumped back half out of the water onto the ice, grabbed the seal, pulled it back in, and then the water just bubbled up with blubber and blood. The other orcas immediately started spy hopping as if they were celebrating, and then all these skuagulls came in and circled because they wanted the scraps of meat that were floating around, the blubber floating around the water. As I looked around, all my friends with cameras, nobody was looking through their lens. Nobody got a good photo of it. Everybody was so amazed that they they wanted to see it for real as opposed to looking through the glass, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think we sometimes get so stuck with like looking through the lens where you get to miss those opportunities to see it face to face. And it's kind of one of those moments you only get that once in a lifetime. And maybe it's better just to share it with yourself than with the world. Yeah, but... Damn, I wish I had that photo now. <laughs> that is true. But at least <laughs> at least we get to share it with within a podcast, right? <laughs> That's right. So I know you aren't slinging uh, seal blubber to go fishing. What do you like to uh, fish for, especially in New Zealand? What was your fly pattern? Well, the, the, there's another good story. Uh, my Kind of my favorite fly to 
to tie for sentimental reasons is a royal wolf. And royal wolf actually, you know, considered kind of a, a basic fly up here and an old fly. Um, it really works good in New Zealand. And so we used to tie them in Antarctica. A, a group of friends of mine and I would sit and tie flies all season and get ready for our redeployment to New Zealand. So I was one of the founding fathers of a fly tying club. Actually, it was a drinking club with a fly tying problem. And uh, <laughs> we referred to ourselves as the Antarctic Spent Spinners, and, uh, or ASS for short, it's the acronym. So anyhow, it was a bunch of, bunch of nut jobs like me that would get together with a bottle of scotch, tie flies, and our motto was tying flies, telling lies, and drinking scotch. And uh, the, we, uh, we named the president of the club the Royal Pain and the Antarctic Spinners, which would be the Royal Pain in the Ass. The vice president was the Jackass. The secretary was the Smartass. The treasurer was the Tightass. The public relations person was the Kissass. If uh, anybody left the club or redeployed, there was a hole in the club, so that was an asshole. And... Uh, <laughs> Basically, it was just an excuse to get together and drink scotch and dream about fishing in New Zealand. We'd tie flies, and and uh, Royal Wolves was one of the more popular ones. One of my favorite flies and memories of, of that whole scene, and on a, a year in between contracts, um, ITT was one of the subcontractors for the Antarctic program, and I had to go back and do a little bit of temporary duty in uh, Paramus, New Jersey, ordering supplies for the Antarctic and such, and uh, was able to go rent a car and drive up to upstate New York. I'm a Westerner, so I never got to fish in kind of the birthplace of American fly fishing on the Beaver Kill and some of those rivers. As, we, as my buddy and I in our rental car came across the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum, there was a sign out that said, fly tying demonstration. So we whipped in there, didn't know where we were, we walked into this little little museum in this little room and sitting at a, at a round table giving a demonstration, a little round table was Lee Wolf, Dave Brandt was doing the tying, Paul Jorgensen and Ralph Graves, all extremely well-known fly tires back in the Catskill area and traditional flies. And Lee Wolf, the originator of the Royal Wolf, amazing man, rest, may you rest in peace. Uh, he was there, and I had asked Dave Brandt to tie me some Royal Wolf so I could see the proper way to tie him. So I, I still have some of those flies that he tied. Dave Brandt just passed away, I think, two months ago. Uh, but an incredible Catskill tire. Uh, Lee Wolf died oh, a couple years after I got to meet him. I think he, I, I can't remember, but I think Lee Wolf died in about 91. Uh, but anyhow, that, so the, for a lot of sentimental reasons, I. I like the Royal Wolf a lot. It's one of my favorite flies, and I remember tying them in the Antarctic, and I remember drinking a hell of a lot of scotch talking about Royal Wolves in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have any uh, luck catching like the fish of a lifetime on a Royal Wolf? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I caught a lot of really nice fish in New Zealand. Um, I, I, I can't say... Fish of a lifetime. I'm still uh, going. Down. I went down this year, and and I've been going down quite often. This last year, I went. Still looking for that big, big, big double digit fish in New Zealand. I mean, every fish in New Zealand is get your legs shaking. Let's put it that way. 
Are you not tr- tr- making any plans to go to Antarctica? Oh, I, you know, I, I would love to go back as a, as a visitor. I had a kind of a dangerous job. So I, I, uh, I was kind of, after nine years when I quit, I kind of quit with a little bit of superstition, I guess. I was, I was just kind of happy that nobody died on my end of the rope and, uh, <laughs> or on my rope and, uh, or on my watch. We had, we had some accidents down there that we were, had to go clean up that were pretty tragic. And, and when you fly to Antarctica uh, on an LC-130 on skis, uh, like if you're flying back from Antarctica to New Zealand, those old 130s are 30, 40, 50 years old on skis, and you're flying over open ocean for eight hours. Uh, and after a while, I'm thinking, man, I, one of these days, one of these planes isn't going to make it. So I guess, you know, I was probably getting a little superstitious, and that's why I quit. Gosh, I think going over that much ocean, I'd get seasickness, you know, just not being able to see any land. So I know you said that your job was dangerous. Like, what would you guys climb just like glaciers or like what was the job? What was the title of your job? Well, the the work down there, all the science, there's a a ton of science going on down there. And I, I call it industrial mountaineering. They... You're, you're flying, you're doing your put-ins, deep field put-ins by LC-130s on skis or, or uh, little fixed wings on skis or helicopters. And uh, back in the early days, the helicopters were all uh, VXC-6 squadron out of California, but then they started using contract helicopters. And then you're traveling by snowmobile. And so, you know, one of the things that my team and I came up with on, when we were down there is, is ways to travel on snowmobiles roped up because of crevasses. So we would travel with one inch hauser laid rope strung from snowmobile to snowmobile to an Anson sled to another snowmobile. And then the drivers would be roped in with a climbing harness with a climbing rope. Um, and so a, a human will fall through a crevasse bridge easier, believe it or not, than a snowmobile. A snowmobile spreads out the weight a little better. So you might step off your snowmobile and then fall right into a crevasse, and that's why you'd be roped up um, on a climbing rope also. And it happened down there. We, we had you know several tragic accidents down there like that. But... Uh, we came up with an interesting way to travel roped up on Skidoo, and we actually did crash test dummies. We had a, a mannequin that we dressed up in an Antarctic suit, strapped on a snowmobile, and launched it off the edge of a crevasse and tested these different systems. And uh, <laughs> it was pretty amazing to get paid to do fun stuff like that. But uh, And then we'd have to Z-drag the you know 650-pound snowmobile back up rig it all up and do it again and see if we get a better result. And, uh, and so we did, we did a lot of crazy work like that. Um, the, a lot of the, a lot of the mountaineering I did were, you know, be quite honest, total boondoggles where I would write a proposal for my team to, uh, do a, for example, a rescue on top of a, a big peak in the Royal Society mountains so that we would know how to handle it. Should a scientist get hurt, and they would buy off on it and fly us in military aircraft across the Ross Sea to the Royal Society Mountains. We'd go bag some peaks and practice some litter lowers and then fly back to McMurdo and, and uh, get paid to do a little fun climbing. Oh, absolutely. I'm curious, though. I mean, did you ever go fishing in Antarctica? 
No, I, it, it's not allowed. Um, the Antarctic Treaty, you're not allowed to, to do anything like that. However, there are scientists down there uh, bringing up Antarctic cod, Mawsonite cod, from very deep down in the ocean. And they're, they were doing all kinds of experiments on fish and various fish. And with the Antarctic cod, they were trying to figure out why the blood didn't freeze in that water that was 28 degrees. And so they would study the glycopeptides in the, in the blood of the cod. And some of those, uh, those uh, laboratory sacrifices, we get to eat, eat some of the cod, and it was pretty good. Very oily, but very rich, but, but really good when you've been living on three bean salad and red jello. Other than going to New Zealand, Antarctica, <laughs> all these great places, is there a place um, for a bucket list of places where you want to go fishing? Oh, a lot of bucket list places. Um, yeah, a couple of them that I've knocked off. Cuba, oh, 18 years ago or whenever it was, was uh, you know, was the top of the bucket list, and I highly recommend it to anybody. And I'd, I'd love to go back to Cuba someday. Um, one of my bucket list trips has always been BC steelheading. I'm a spay rotter since I live in salmon and fish a lot for steelhead. Uh, and I finally, uh, fall before last, I got to go up to the Dean and do a, a DIY trip. We helicoptered in four of us with one raft and floated for six days or so, uh, swinging dry flies for steelhead. And that's still on my bucket list to just go back and do that again. It was everything I dreamed and way more. It was incredible. Have you been doing a lot of fishing in Idaho? Yeah, yeah. We've got... Uh, Fishing and salmon is horrible. So tell everybody that on the podcast. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've been doing a lot of fishing and, and uh, you know, what, believe it or not, one of my favorite species to fish for is carp. And uh, so we do a lot of carping. Uh, Blackfoot Reservoir over on the Wyoming-Idaho border is this wonderful place to fish for a big mirror carp. So you're catching 20 plus pound carp in about three feet of water on a fly. It's really fun. And they're smart. They're hard to catch. Um, it's a great time. Um, up in the Missouri, there's some great carp. And, and so carp, you know, there's carp everywhere. And so that's a fun species where you can kind of pretend like you're on a saltwater trip. Um, and, and then trout-wise, you know, obviously salmon is located just over the hill from the upper Bitterroot, just over the hill from the upper Big Hole, just over the hill from the upper Beaverhead. And then we have the Salmon River and the Middle Fork of the Salmon. So we've got some... Some nice stuff, but we're not known for the trout fishing here like Missoula would be or, or Bozeman, uh, places like that. But they also don't have steelhead, so we kind of got that going for us. What makes you want to continue to fish? Like, why do you love it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not just because of the fishing. I mean, one of the things I love about living in remote Idaho is it's just quality time to be in a boat floating uh, bird life a lot of the a lot of the world is turning to concrete and uh, asphalt and crowds and uh, you know I don't need to tell you how magical it is to be on a river especially if you don't see anybody upstream or downstream of you and you're just floating along hoping to catch a fish so I think it's just you know the appreciation of nature uh, and Fish and the bug life are, you know, just really fun to study. Probably a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast, it's just, uh, it's hard to describe, uh, but it, it feels right. Yeah, it's definitely a place of zen for me. 
So Brooks, if people want to learn more about what you do and your company, what's the best way uh, for them to reach you or to learn more about it? Hart Montgomery Outdoor Sales, we have a website, the gang that works for me. So they, they, my crew is uh, Janet Lund is our admin and does customer service work. And she's worked for me now. She's a masochist. She's worked for me for 18 years, I think. Uh, Travis Morris in Bozeman's worked for me at least 15 years. Uh, Grant Dixon is a reformed corporate lawyer, uh, sales rep in Bozeman that works for me. Uh, originally from Nashville, and Brett Stoker uh, is the newest member of our team and uh, in Bozeman, and he worked at Sims in uh, customer service for quite a while. Those are the guys. I'm like, if you've ever seen the old TV show Taxi, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of like Danny DeVito, the, <laughs> the guy that dispatches the taxis. I just, you know, they're the ones doing the real work. I'm the old guy at the desk. <laughs> There, there are the movers and shakers and great people. They work really hard. And, uh, you know, we, we rep some great products, uh, and they're on our website. We're very excited to have just picked up a fantastic new rod line from New Zealand called Composite Developments. You might have heard of it. Oh, it's the best, the best rod out there right now. <laughs> it, it, on a serious note, what I will say about New Zealand sporting goods um, the, the thing I've loved about New Zealanders, along with their country, is they are very technical, uh, very exacting, but they're the most humble people. They're not chest pounders like a lot of us Americans are, and they're very understated. But when they do stuff, whether it be a, a sailboat for uh, America's Cup or any high-tech endeavor, they're, they're at the top of, the, of their class by far. But when you do sporting events, I'll warn any of you out there, when you do something with a Kiwi, they are sandbaggers. So if you're kayaking with a Kiwi and he says, oh, there's a weed drop coming up, be prepared to go kayaking off about a 20-foot waterfall. Um, if you're mountaineering with a Kiwi and he says, there's a wee abseil coming up here, uh, be prepared to be in a bergschrund with your rope around an icicle with an avalanche pouring over your head. Um, they're just they're really understated and uh, and they're really, really fun people to, to go do uh, climbing, skiing, kayaking, fishing with. <laughs> well, I'm, I can't wait to the opportunity once things kind of maybe get to a better normal place to go out there and go fishing because I only hear just wonderful things about it. Yeah, it's fantastic there. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Brooks. And I look forward to maybe uh, going over the valley, over the other valley, into the other valley to Salmon, Idaho, to check your crappy fishing waters. Yeah, we'll keep a light on for you. For the inside scoop on the fly patterns we've discussed with our guest, check our blog for Flies of the February Room. If you would like to enter the February Room, shoot us an email at info at cdfishing.us. Also, remember to subscribe, share, and if we've earned it, give us those five stars. Thanks for dropping by, and remember to go fishing.